Right now, though, as you know, the restrictions in B.C. recently shifted a little bit, allowing outdoor gatherings of up to 10 people. That was announced just before spring break got underway for many people. There has been a lot of reaction to this. There has also been some confusion about whether or not this new grouping rule is also for bar patios and restaurant patios and those types of places. Well, let's bring on Owen Coomer, the Tap House Coquitlam Operations Manager. Owen, great to have you back on the program. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, Is there confusion out there? Are you getting people coming in saying we're a group of nine or we're a group of 10 and it's okay, you can let us sit on the patio now? Uh, well, especially with the weather, that, yeah, absolutely. We've been getting lots of calls and we've had a uh, number of emails that have come in just uh, asking that kind of question. And uh, yes, of course, it is very strange. <laughs> <laughs> and the answer from what I understand right now, it doesn't actually apply to commercial spots, pubs, restaurant, patios. It, it doesn't. And it is obviously very strange. I mean, bottom line is, uh, especially, you know, considering that how a lot of the municipalities uh, opened up the, their patio extensions and so on and so forth. Um, it doesn't make any sense that, you know, 10 people can get together and have, let's just say, even takeout from us uh, of up to 10 people sitting at a park picnic bench, and that's okay, but places like restaurants and bars that have been open for 10 months with the cleaning and the sanitizing and all the, the steps that we have with, you know, mask wearings when you're getting up, to, you know, to use washer and so on, how that doesn't apply you know, it's it's uh, it is very strange, but you know, at the end of the day, um, talking with Jeff uh, Guinard from Able, he was looking at, at this as yeah, even though it's very strange, that it might end up being where there's going to be some ease of other restrictions that potentially we might be able to go from six to eight people, or possibly open up till twelve o'clock midnight, for instance, for alcohol sales. Maybe in the next you know month or so, depending on the vaccines and, and herd immunity and all sorts you know all sorts. So opening up this you know for public gatherings outside, you know might end up being a good thing for us in the future. But it is still very strange how one is okay and one is not. Uh, yeah, and I get that uh, you're being so positive about it, which is great. But uh, you you must be dealing with people uh, in the public that are making that exact argument, saying I could get takeout, I could sit on this bench across the street from your pub and do exactly this and not be breaking any rules. What's the difference? Uh, absolutely, and, th- and that's that's really kind of I think is quite maddening because I, I find that um, this you know, whole thing, this pandemic and all these restrictions and so on. I mean, it's been very exhausting on everybody. And I know that um, confusion is the biggest because I think when they make these decisions, they forget about like the big picture of what, you know, reality is going to end up set forth. And the problem is, is that we become the educators to the guests because they're not really fully aware of the rules that are set in you know place. And if there's something like this, where we're getting calls and we're saying, I'm, you know, I'm sorry. And they're saying, no, 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 you're, you're the one that's wrong. It looks kind of, it looks like we're the bad guys. Right. But I mean, at the end of the day, it, it is what it is. I mean, we've been dealing with this uh, ongoing change up you know, almost on a day to day, you know? So, I mean, we just try to make do and do the best we can. I would imagine too, it makes things a little bit strange also in that people hopefully have got the memo now about six people or less at tables and hopefully aren't taking that out on staff and are realizing that that's still the rule, uh, but might gather on the patio and keep adding to their table because they feel like that they know that it's okay and having to be told repeatedly probably by staff, stop doing that. 
Oh, I'm sure it's going to end up coming to play. I mean, you know, we're all, every one of us, I'm sure, is very sick and tired of what's going on. And, and we, we're social animals. And, and I, that's exactly what the case is, is that I think that that confusion is, is going to take part. I mean, it's, it's very strange that still we're listed in the pubs and the restaurants as it has to be six people that are in, you know, your household. It's not just, you know, six random people. So that's still the, what's the rule. But yet outside up to 10 people, it's, within your kind of bubble as long as it's the same bubble. It's it's very confusing. Yeah, and it's been kind of confusing all along because even when you look at the wording under the public health order, it says you should only go into a restaurant with your household. There's no, yeah. It's not as though uh, your staff are being told to police it and there's a ticket or a fine or anything. It's just what people are being told they should do and it's being discouraged to not go outside your household uh, when you're inside. But you're right, now a whole new, a new level of confusion when you're outside. <laughs> oh, I, I know. And and that's really what, what what's uh, maddening about the whole thing. And you're right. I, I mean, about policing. I mean, even for us, you know, uh, with our COVID policies, I mean, you obviously were, were requesting uh, that we have to have somebody, you know, take a phone number, you know, within the group so we can do the contract tracing. But I mean, it's not like, like again, we're, it's not like we're calling that number and saying, hey, that better ring, you know, like. It's it's the same with the parties. Like we're, we're we we just are assuming that people are going to have the onus that this is on them, and uh, you know they come in and, and dine with us and be safe and so on. But I mean, again, with the whole what can be allowed outside compared to inside, and what's the difference between a patio on a uh, in a pub and restaurant that sanitizes rather than your own patio at your house? I mean. Very, very strange, very strange times. Uh, the last time we talked to you, it was about Super Bowl and yeah. about the restrictions coming up for that. We now know at least uh, people were given a bit of a, a heads up as far as liquor sales having to stop at 8 p.m. Uh, on St. Patrick's Day. Uh, is there confusion, though? Because I, I remember you talking about you couldn't have decorations or you couldn't yes. have a Super Bowl Day special or something. Do you know what the rules are for St. Patrick's Day? Well, they, uh, they, this is the funny thing is, is that they didn't really announce anything about uh, the event, uh, which is what Super Bowl was, is that they were trying to say that this is uh, an event and, and make sure, like, I, I've basically encouraged the staff just to make sure that we're not putting up decorations, we're not wearing green, uh, we don't have any uh, promotions on that day, even though we'd be rocking one out the entire month of March, you know, on Guinness, but we're not going to be doing that advertising on that day. It, there is a little bit of confusion because of what uh, what the rules are and all they've said is that just you know keep in mind that things are not an event but they're not actually saying do not have menus that are catering to you know green uh, i still see people having acoustic guitar you know at certain pubs on that day and they've never done it before like i i, I find it very strange but at the end of the day we're just going to do our best and and ensure that you know, we're going to be okay up until 8. I, I do find it very odd, though, regardless of the 8 o'clock to 10 o'clock rule, because it's St. Patrick's Day. It's basically the argument, uh, you know, arguably the biggest drinking day in Beijing. Yeah, I know it's a Wednesday, but it's St. Patrick's Day. I didn't understand how at 8 o'clock, you know, that's going to that, that's gonna stop any spread of COVID. I'm sure most people are probably just going to go and go to somebody's house or whatever it is the case. So very interesting times, that's for sure. Yeah, and, and I don't want to be cynical here, but you're right. And they might go with the intention of, don't worry, we'll stay in the backyard. And then it's 9 o'clock and then it's 10 o'clock and it gets even colder. And uh, who knows if that's what continues. Oh, 100%, especially now that you're allowed to have 10, you know, mm-hmm. in, your, in, your, uh, in your little bubble of your patio. It's just, it's very odd. Uh, but again, we, we do what we can. We expected that this was going to take place. And, and yes, it was grateful that they gave us at least a week notice. But we've been smart about it ever since, you know, New Year's and Super Bowl. 
what we expect kind of the government to kind of come down, you know, the, the, the provincial health authority and things like that. We kind of are, are starting to understand a little bit of their mentality and, and uh, quote unquote, their game, you know, uh, like how to handle these things. So we've been proactive about being better and kind of knew that this was probably going to take place. So, yes, it's going to hurt some sales. Absolutely. But there's not really much we can do. We can't, you know, cry over spilled milk. So we just have to do the best we can in the time that we're allowed to be open and, you know, hope that uh, everybody uh, still has a fun day and, and, and so on. I mean, it's, it's at least personally, it sucks for my son. Uh, he's turning four and it's the second year in a row that St. Patrick's Day is ruined. So, <laughs> yeah, it's his birthday. So it's just one of those things. Uh, and not that your son would be doing this. So I'm still unclear. Yeah. So do you know, can you serve green beer for St. Patrick's well, Day or does is that a... A decoration. Uh, yeah, that's another thing. I mean, again, technically, we're we don't serve green beer at our locations throughout the year. So, based on again that event mentality, if we were to do so on St. Patrick's Day, you could argue that depending on what uh, you know bylaw officer or you know, liquor inspector goes in, that might look like that we're doing something different that we're making it an event the day. So again, you're it's, that's the confusing thing. Is that like, is, you know, my, one of my bartenders at our Coquitlam location is from Ireland. And the thing is, is that he's like, am I not allowed to say, you know, kiss me, I'm Irish, wear a shirt because I am Irish. Is that making an event? And I'm, I just felt bad for him. I'm like, you can't wear it. Sorry. Huh. Wow. You know? So there's just a little bit of confusion and, and there's always that fear of, you just don't want to be the place that ends up getting fined, you know, because Again, some inspectors read and interpret the rules differently than others. And that's where it can be really trying. And I feel bad for a lot of, you know, pubs and restaurants. I mean, you look at the St. James as well as a perfect example. Tri- Trivia Night, they never said it was not okay to do one. And there was tons of bars and restaurants that were doing it in, in uh, Vancouver prior to that. It just happened to be that they ended up getting, you know, an unfortunate situation where, you know, COVID hit. Yeah. But, it's, you know, a lot of people are, you know, razzing them about it. But yet there were lots of other places that were, were doing this. So that's this, that, that's that mentality I'm saying is, is that certain people read the rules differently. And that's why it's confusing. So rather than take the risk, sometimes we just end up just not doing anything. That way, there's no way we can get in trouble, right? So. All right. You will still be open, though. So we'll let people oh, know absolutely. that. Oh, and thanks for joining us to talk about this. Appreciate it. Yeah, not a problem. Thanks again for having me. As you've been hearing in the news, changes coming on who will be eligible to receive the AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine. NASI based the decision to change its guidance on a couple of studies for this age group. One in Britain, where the AstraZeneca vaccine has been given to people 65 years and older since January. And there was also a separate study out of Scotland with similar positive results. This evidence demonstrates that the vaccine is safe and effective, particularly against severe COVID-19 disease and hospitalization. Dr. Carolyn Quatch says that means the drug is now recommended for anyone 18 and over. She also notes if there is a choice, the mRNA vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna should be prioritized for older seniors. And she says they will continue to watch the situation here and abroad and will update its recommendations if needed. Now, the AstraZeneca vaccine has been used in Ontario as part of the pilot to have some pharmacies and doctors give shots to the 60 to 64 age group. It's not known if that will be expanded now to include those who are older. Tina Trajani, Global News. Let's bring in Dr. Horacio Bach, adjunct professor at the Division of Infectious Diseases at UBC. Dr. Bach, great to have you back. Thank you so much for the invitation. Great to be here. What would you say to anyone who hears this news and still has concerns about this vaccine? 
well, you know, that was uh, already in the news a couple of weeks ago about the, uh, this specific group can be vaccinated. And data that came last week from Scotland, as it was mentioned in the news uh, now, and the uh, UK, um, it looks like the performance of the AstraZeneca vaccine in this group of people is even better than the Pfizer. So, um, unfortunately, the clinical trial was performed in that specific group, you know, that is not including uh, or you exclude specific ages, but it doesn't mean that you cannot use. And I think it's a, a, a very wise, wise decision to do that because the data from January show that it's okay. So it's safe. There is no issues with uh, some uh, uh, um, secondary effects. And, you know, from January till today with uh, uh, so many people vaccinated, you should see already something that is going wrong in case it was some issues with this vaccination. Uh, is it also an issue of when we talk about the fact that we're now using the real world evidence, not the, the clinical trials, because it wasn't really tested on people in that age group? Is that simply because they, they chose not to test in people of that age group or it was kind of fast tracked and maybe there weren't enough people available? Yeah, well, it's uh, hard to answer this question, but in general, these clinical trials are very defined from the beginning. So you cannot say, okay, I will vaccinate all the groups because they need to do analysis after. So if you vaccinate every group, so maybe you don't have enough people for each category, and that to get the statistic analysis will be a problem because you may have from 40 to 50, let's say 10,000 people, but from 65 to 80, you have only 2,000 people. So it's very hard to compare. That's the reason they prefer to put in the safer way uh, uh, that, you know, from 18, over 18 up to 65 years old, and then you, you, you check because... Over 65, we know that more and more diseases are appearing, you know, as, as we age. And that's a problem that they don't want to go there because you don't know exactly what's happening. There are much more, uh, let's say, type of diseases in people. And it's very hard to analyze this data when you're talking about 50,000 people. And what about the the issue of um, the the health officials, people who are making these decisions, uh, and people with NASI saying, "Don't think of this. It's not a flip flop. It is monitoring evidence. It's getting more of that real world evidence and making decisions based on that." You know, I completely agree because, <clears throat> sorry, that is a new vaccine, and again, all this information we are exploring, uh, the decision we are exploring now. That in a general, uh, in a real world, takes five to ten years to put a vaccine in the market. So all this answer will come in that period. But now we are in emergency. And I think it's very wise to take, okay, so we know from UK they vaccinated, let's say, a 10 million people or X number of people for, you know, this uh, 65 plus, And they don't see any problem. So our population doesn't need to be so different. And they say, okay, it's okay to do because... That was not tested in death, and that is a problem. That you don't have the data doesn't mean that you cannot use. So it's just like a, the beginning, just prevention to see what's going on. I'm sure if something happened, you know, over 65 years old, uh, you know, we had some problem with the, uh, with the vaccine, AstraZeneca vaccine, they will say, you know what, you cannot use if you have coagulation problem. You cannot use if you have ABCD. But since they started, there's no evidence that is causing any issue, basically.
And the issue of uh, people will likely recall that some European countries had halted using the AstraZeneca. Uh, there were concerns about blood clots, but it looks like the information out now is that there wasn't a connection and that that's not a concern, that, uh, not something that people need to worry about. Yes, I just want to, if I have one minute, to explain very fast. So yeah. people, people that they have a, a, a blood clot issues, um, in general, in the population, what we call incidence means how many people per 1,000 people in the population or 100,000, 1 million, is 1 per 1,000. That is the normal incidence. Any population you take, let's say here in Canada, every 1,000 people, they will have one that is with blood clotting issues. Now, assuming that AstraZeneca vaccinated 5 million people, okay, if you divide by uh, 1,000, uh, uh, so you have 5,000 people that need to show uh, symptoms to be in the baseline, and that is per year, okay? We don't know yet, but let's let divide in 12, so you will have between 400 to 500 people per month to have this syndrome to be in the background, in the baseline. If after the vaccination of one month, you say, oh, you know, I have 1,000 people, now you say, whoa, that is an alarm. But we are registering or, or, or reporting only 30 cases in 5 million. So it's far away and probably there is no connection. I, I, I wonder if people without the vaccine always will die no matter what, you know, these people that passed away. But I don't think there is a connection and we are way, way down of the normal rate in the population. Right, which should be reassuring to people because I, I think we don't normally talk about vaccine rollout and look at all of these different stages and look at this so under such a microscope. Exactly, exactly. But, you know, I think, again, I want to repeat to the audience is this country, they stopped because they are waiting for the investigation. That's it. It doesn't mean that the vaccine is bad. We don't want to vaccinate. They just want to know that these people is something related to the vaccine. And I want to add something else. It might be related to the distribution. That was a big batch that was distributed over 17 different countries. And maybe, you know, a specific part of this batch that needs to be sent, for example, to, uh, I, I don't know, Italy. So what happened, the, the operator just forgot, you know, under the sun or didn't put in the fridge on time. You know, there are so many factors in the distribution system as well that can have an impact. So that will come probably investigated and doesn't have to do anything with the vaccine, just the, the no proper a, a, a handling of the vaccine. So they, they mentioned that probably tomorrow, uh, no, sorry, Thursday, uh, we'll have the reports to see if it's something like that or not. But um, AstraZeneca already mentioned that the person that passed away in Austria was not related to the vaccine. Uh, do you think this will help then as far as now not prioritizing, uh, say, using the Pfizer, the, sorry, the Pfizer-BioNTech and the Moderna for a specific age group? Now that all of the vaccine available can be used, it can be rolled out to, to whatever group, does that help uh, administer it, get it out there faster? Yes, yes, definitely. And I think it's, it's, it's very good because we have to vaccinate as fast as possible because, again, Every person that is sick is a, proper, a probability to generate a new variant. And once we, uh, more people are vaccinated, less possibility of the virus to find a new person to infect. That's the reason is as fast as we can do is the best. All right, Dr. Abak, we'll leave it there again for today. Thanks so much for coming back on the show to talk about this.
Thank you so much for the invitation. Have a great day. Thanks for being with us on this Tuesday afternoon. A new survey finds that the majority of British Columbians, at least those questioned, would support a compulsory certification of the skilled trades and believe that having that kind of certification in place will make the construction industry safer. This was a poll done by Research Co. And joining me to talk more about this is Bryn Bork, Interim Executive Director of the BC Building Trades. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much for inviting me on the show, Jill, and hello to your listener. I think some people might also be surprised that there isn't a compulsory trades certification program, that there isn't one already in place. Now, is this an example of something that we used to have and don't anymore, or, or do you know the background there? I do. It, it, it is an example. Um, in 2002, the BC Liberal government eliminated compulsory trades, and BC, in the prevailing 20 years since then, it has been the only province not to have a system of compulsory trades. Most provinces have between you know, 15 and 21 different trades that they, that they designate as compulsory. And so what would the difference be then if we brought back this compulsory certification for skilled trades? What, what would actually change? Well, this would mean that if, uh, if you were an electrician and you were practicing an electrical trade, uh, you would either have to be a registered apprentice or a Red Seal journey person. And is it a problem right now that we don't have it? Indeed it is. <laughs> um, I mean, what the provincial government is looking to do, and we, we know this because they, they were very clear in the last election, they're looking to re-regulate the labour market and to build capacity to meet growing demand in the skilled trades. And this is really going to open the doors and get more people into apprenticeships in BC. So as it stands now, if somebody is out there and bills themselves, say, as an electrician, other than maybe checking with the the Better Business Bureau or finding testimonials or checking, is there no way for somebody to actually to check and see that this person uh, has trained as an electrician and is a working electrician? Well, I think that you should ask uh, the you know any contractor that you're looking to contract with whether they're an apprentice or whether they have a red seal. And if they have a red seal, which is a, a demonstration of their certification in the craft, they can produce it for you. Right. And and have we seen then since this was eliminated in 2002, have we seen a, a number or an increase in shoddy work or dangerous type of work? Well, I think what what we've seen is that this had a profound impact on apprentices in the system. And I, you know, I had friends in 2002 who were electrical apprentices and they, you know, they ended up spending four, six, eight years getting their red seals when when the system was um, deregulated. It really disincentivized employers to take on and indenture apprentices. It also encouraged employers to uh, not release apprentices so they could go back for technical training and move through their levels. We saw completion rates collapse. And so this was really, there was a generation of apprentices who were profoundly harmed when we deregulated the system. And this will really rebalance uh, our, our labor force, improve quality in construction and add value for both workers and consumers. Uh, does it also better protect people who are in the trades as far as they have the certification and they've got that to back themselves up? I think it does. I mean, and it, it also kind of, it, it job protects them because what it will do is give them a, a full scope. 
in the trade so that they can really go and move, journey to different jobs. They can demonstrate that they have the skills to take on a whole bunch of capacities within the trade. And, you know, think about it like journalism, right? You may, you may have learned how to write, but if you aren't taught how to interview, how to research, how to do an FOI request, it, it, it makes it very challenging to do the full craft as a journalist. Uh, and I, I would imagine there, there are a lot of, of different jobs and careers that, that are much the same. Uh, I, I'm thinking of, of a lawyer. We know that lawyers do apprentice work uh, in, in law firms as well before they're called to the bar. Uh, what do you think? What, so what would it take other than reinstating this? What would it take to actually bring this back? Well, the government's been consulting on this. Actually, it started with the B.C. Liberal government about four years ago, and then the NDP really picked it up and held three different consultations with industry. And now we, you know, I believe that they're in the process of drafting legislation and they will um, sort of express which trades will be first uh, that make the most sense as, as early trades to restore. And then they'll design a pathway for workers to certify within the craft. And our goal uh, as the building trades is to make sure no worker is left behind, right? We know that folks may have entered the construction industry in the last 20 years, not knowing uh, what was in place, not knowing the standards in every other province. They've, you know, perhaps been practicing a trade. And what we want to do is provide as much support to make them successful as they recertify um, and, and really give them more, uh, more scope so that they're actually uh, job ready to take on a, a lifetime career in the trade. So what would happen then to somebody who has been working, say they've been working for 10 years, 15 years in a particular trade, would that person then have to recertify? Uh, ultimately, if, if it's one of the designated compulsory trades, they will, but they will eventually. So they'll receive notice, they'll receive uh, communication, ideally by the Industry Training Authority, they'll be given a pathway for how to demonstrate uh, the skills that they have already, identify gaps that they might need to make them uh, ready to, to uh, attend technical training, and ultimately to write the Red Seal test for their craft. Uh, would it, can you see a scenario there where somebody might be reluctant, say, if they're running a small construction company or they've been working in construction or, or such, they went to school, they got a certificate in that, and they've been doing it for a few years, uh, and they're happy doing that, they've got good reviews, they've got good clientele, and they don't want to go through all of that? Well, I, I, think, I think that ultimately it's... It, it's so necessary. Uh, you know, we have, uh, you know, BC stands alone and no other province with all the different governments that we've had across Canada, no other province has taken this step because it is so drastic uh, and it has a profound impact on the workforce, the skills of the workforce, the labour mobility. And if we really want to uh, draw investment in British Columbia, have, you know, major uh, contractors have confidence that BC has a, a skilled and ready workforce. This is what we need to do right now coming out of COVID is, is invest in training people up and giving them the skills that they will need to build our province. And so I think I kind of already asked this, but do you have any idea on, I know there's been a, a commitment by the current government to do this time-wise, what would be a realistic timeline to actually bring this back? I think um, I think it's something that really needs to take place in phases. I'm hoping that we'll see legislation in the fall that introduces the trades that will be 
uh, made compulsory and then identifies a pathway so folks have notice and they also we can we can um, offer the the programming and the courses make sure that there are seats available make sure that there are wraparound supports so that if they struggle with numeracy or literacy or English second language that all those supports are in place to make them successful our goal is not to leave people behind with this change it's actually to leave them better off uh, and more skilled um, and more ready for a lifelong career in the trade. All right, uh, Bryn, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much for joining us to talk more about this. Thanks so much, Jill. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, there are a lot of questions about what things are going to look like three months from now, six months from now, a year from now. And one of those questions has to do with returning to work. And we've talked about this on the program. A lot of people moving further away from their jobs, knowing that they'll be able to work some kind of hybrid. They'll be able to stay home, if not all of the time, at least part of the time. What does that mean when we talk about office tower construction taking place throughout Metro Vancouver? Well, joining me now to talk more about this is Jock Finlayson, Senior Policy Analyst with the Business Council of BC. Jock, thanks so much for being with us. No problem. Uh, A lot of people have been uh, looking at this, musing about this, but not really knowing what things are going to look like, say, in six months' time, in a year time, when we're talking about a return to work. What do you think it's going to look like as far as people still working from home or returning to that office? Yeah, no, it's a great question and, and something I think a lot of folks are uh, are uh, mulling over these days and discussing. And, and the good news is there's, you know, surveys being done. Uh, we have an opportunity here at the Business Council to talk to a lot of large companies that are based in our province. And uh, there's some academic research that's also kind of vending in to provide insights. So I think we're we're not going to go back to the patterns of work uh, and the sort of spatial distribution of work that we got used to before COVID-19 uh, washed, washed onto our shores about a year ago. I think we're, we're, we'll see a partial return of people who have been uh, working a majority of their time from home over the past year. We'll see a partial return of people to the office setting but it's not going to go back. So we'll have what some would call a hybrid model, um, where a lot of organizations, compared to the way things were before COVID-19, will have many more of their employees on any given day off-site, uh, doing their work from home, um, and which means they'll need less office space uh, and probably a reconfiguration of the kind of workstations they have today. We should just note here, we're talking about those kinds of jobs that can be done from home. I think it's really important to acknowledge that a lot of people, that's not an option. Um, Academic estimates suggest that maybe 35 or 40 percent of all jobs in the economy can be performed at least part of the time remotely. The others need to be on site. So work from home is not an option for people delivering frontline services or in the retail industry or working in manufacturing plants, you know, working in municipal services, etc. Most most of those folks need to be on site. Uh, I often, when I can, I walk to work and I walk by what seems to be ongoing construction in downtown Vancouver. And I've, I'm often struck with that in the pandemic because they seem to be building office towers. And I'm curious what your thoughts are. It's great that we're seeing construction go ahead, but is there going to be an excess, do you think, of office space if people are going to go to this hybrid model? 
Yeah, no, that's another good question. We we have a 32 or 34 story new tower being built right next to to the building I work in. So I'm very conscious of what you're saying. These obviously were projects that were designed and sanctioned, you know, two and three and four years ago, uh, in, in a very different kind of context. We had a very tight office market, uh, especially for for high quality space here in the in the city of Vancouver, um, in the lead up to COVID. Uh, you do have this new capacity that's being built. I think eventually the space will be occupied probably, but uh, the real issue is what are the lease rates going to be? Uh, because if the if the demand is softer on kind of a on an ongoing basis, there's kind of a structural shift in the market. In other words, um, I would think we'll see some downward pressure on the office leasing rates. Uh, there's lots of people who probably like to be in the central business district of Vancouver or in the uh, you know, similar areas of other large Canadian cities, uh, but lower prices might be what will entice them to locate there. So I, I, I don't see much of a risk of, you know, all kinds of empty towers. Um, but I think the owners of these assets may discover that they're not quite as lucrative in the post-COVID world as they were back in 2019. Uh, do you think that we could even see ourselves in a scenario where we need to look at zoning in that if, if we, hopefully there won't be empty towers, but if we do see uh, this hybrid model and more people working from home, would it not make sense to look at some of those office-specific uh, towers and make them residential? Yeah, well, I do think that in, in – I'm not sure that will be the case here, but I, I, places like Calgary, for example, where they have the highest office vacancy rates in North America at the moment, um, I think that's a real – a real scenario where you're going to get a repurposing of space uh, that might have been originally built to house, you know, white collar office employees, and you end up, you know, looking for different different uses. Um, and 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 the same is going to happen with retail space. Uh, you know, the the COVID-19 crisis, in addition to prompting a lot of people to work from home, um, has also changed patterns of consumption. Uh, particularly in the retail part of consumer spending, uh, much more, uh, tr- many more transactions being done online. People getting comfortable uh, buying stuff online. My own household is actually a small example of that we never did any online purchasing before COVID. Now we are, and I think we're going to end up with a, a significant excess of sort of brick and mortar retail space uh, in in shopping malls and other kind of retail districts. And there, I think it, it it's maybe a bit easier to imagine a reconfiguration of space. Office towers, though, yeah, I suppose some of them could be repurposed for residential, assuming people want to live downtown, uh, right? I mean, right. The, the desire to live downtown is often linked to proximity to work. Um, and if people are more comfortable working from home uh, and, and aren't coming to, to the office as much, maybe the case for living downtown diminishes somewhat. So I think these things are kind of interconnected. Uh, and what are your thoughts on that model as well? And and I consider myself very lucky in that I have been coming to the office uh, throughout this pandemic. But what about people who are working from home, uh, maybe have struggled with it? Do we lose out on, on brain power? Or do we lose out on, on what we get from human connection, having people at uh, a, a central place where they can see each other and talk and, and have that interaction? Yeah, I think that's, you know, not everybody wants to work from home. Not every company wants their employees to be working remotely. A lot of people are going to have to get their heads wrapped around what's the best kind of mix. Uh, I would be very surprised to see a world where 
large numbers of employees are working from home and never set foot in the office. Uh, I just, I mean, that's a, that's a real stretch. That wasn't the world we had before COVID. We only had two or 3% of the workforce uh, typically working from home. Uh, now it's obviously much higher. And incidentally, McKinsey, the big global consulting firm, just put a paper out uh, a few weeks ago where they estimated that uh, across all the advanced economies, including Canada, that somewhere between 15 and 20 percent of all workers coming out of the COVID crisis, once it's behind us, that 15 to 20 percent of all workers will spend at least half their time working from home. So that means a lot of people will be living through this kind of a hybrid work model where they spend, you know, two days a week at home or three days a week at home and then another day or two in the office. And that way you can retain that connection that you're referring to in your in your in your question uh, where people can brainstorm together uh, where they can you know maintain the social connectiveness that that's that's obviously important in uh, for, you know for human beings and including in the workplace environment and i think younger workers in particular i've seen a lot of talked to a lot of business leaders who've said that younger employees and people who've been hired in particular have struggled with this work from home model because they don't get the mentoring they don't get socialized into the company uh, if they're if they're sitting at home looking at everything on a computer screen. So there definitely is a loss, I think, that comes from not being proximate to your workplace and with your colleagues. Which is why I I do expect most organizations you'll you'll continue to have your employees at least a certain portion of the time being on site. Um, but uh, for those who want to work from home, I think that option will be there going forward. All right. Interesting numbers uh, for sure. Jock Finlayson, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for your time. All right. Thanks very much, Joe. Well, that music is a hint as to the debate that was sparked here at CKNW earlier today. And I will honestly say I have never thought about this question. I didn't know the answer to this question, nor did I know there was any difference between these two things. We were talking about shamrocks versus four-leaf clovers. Yes, we all went immediately to Google to try and find out. And this was all brought upon us by uh, executive producer John O'Dowd, who is one of the managers here, happens to be Irish and just became a Canadian. That has nothing to do with this story. But he was very adamant that there is a distinct difference. They are not the same thing. So what did we do? We asked our show contributor, John Jang, to get to the bottom of it. And he did just that. And with more on that, here he is. Good afternoon, Jill. I understand there's been quite a debate in the office today trying to determine the difference between a four-leaf clover and a shamrock, and why any of this matters as we get set to celebrate St. Patrick's Day tomorrow. Now, I know this will come as a bit of a shock, but I'm not Irish, which is why I went out and found the most qualified guest possible. Joining us is Paddy Hinehan, owner of Rock Hill Contracting, a landscaping company here in Vancouver. Paddy, what is the difference between a shamrock and a four-leaf clover, and which plant is actually symbolic to St. Patrick's Day? Yeah, so bo- both of them are actually clovers. Uh, the three-leaf clover is rare, and it's a younger younger clover type of clover, and that's what's uh, a symbolic with St. Patrick, the patron saint of Ireland. 
Interesting. So is it believed that the three-leaf clover is really the the special version, and the four-leaf clover, although it looks nice, is really not that fancy at all, and you can just kind of discard it? Uh, the the four the four leaf clover is a is a newer thing, and it was said to the fourth leaf was to give you good luck. Uh, oh. the, the three leaf clover that St Patrick would have, he was going around Ireland trying to teach people at the time about uh, God and stuff like that, and that's what he used the the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, and right. uh, he that's that's what where it came from. Oh, I love that. Okay, so we have the history here, and the four-leaf clover now apparently the the young hotshot on the scene, as it were. But if it does bring people luck, I guess both of them do have some value when it comes to celebrating St. Patrick's Day. For sure. For sure they do. Interesting. And and when it comes to celebrating St. Patrick's Day, as uh, as a Vancouverite that lives in the area, Patty, you know, are, are there things about celebrating St. Patrick's Day that isn't being done properly? Like, if you could stand on a rock and, and just sort of yell at people who might misinterpret what St. Patrick's is all about. I suppose the most important thing is to uh, have fun with your friends, enjoy it. It's good to see everybody coming together and recognizing it. Um, yeah, go out. Actually, part of the history was to wet the shamrock at the end of the day. And what you were supposed to do was put the shamrock into a glass of whatever special brew you were drinking, drink it, and then uh, that was it. Oh, but, so you, uh, you would actually drink the shamrock? No, you, you, you'd leave it in the glass like a, just like a, like a lemon or whatever. Ah, I see. Interesting. I've never done and that then, before. Uh, yeah, but that's where, at the end of the day, it was said to, ha- to wet the shamrocks off. Everybody would head out to the local pub or whatever at the end of Lent to break that ritual and take into some nice tasty pints. Oh, I love it. And the whole notion of green beers, that's appropriate? That's okay? Uh, it's okay. We don't do that in Ireland, but uh, it's usually the Guinness. Good, healthy pint of Guinness is always nice on Paddy's Day. Perfect. Yeah, I guess um, I guess we sort of glamorized as we do tend to do in North America. <laughs> that's yeah, yeah. It's good though. It's good to see it. He is Patty Hinahan from Rock Hill Contracting, our Shamrock expert. Appreciate you giving us some time here today. No problem at all. Now, as Patty explained, the four-leaf clover is believed to bring you luck, even if it's not intrinsically connected to St. Patrick himself. And if you're wondering why that is, the YouTube channel Colossal Cranium actually explains. There's only one four-leaf clover for every 5,000 normal ones. That means that about 99.99% of clovers you find have just three leaves. If something is that rare, it's easy to see how people would consider it lucky to find one. And finally, if you're going to be celebrating St. Patty's Day, remember to spell it Patty with a D. That is the appropriate shortened form of Patrick in Ireland, whereas Patty with a T is the shortened form of Patricia. And using the wrong letter can be offensive to some. No matter how you choose to celebrate, there's really only one thing to remember. Do it safely and have some fun. (laughs) All right, and John Jang is with us now. Uh, We've learned a lot today.
Yes, absolutely. I didn't realize that you have to wet the shamrock. I mistakenly thought you kind of swallowed it with your first beer. Uh, <laughs> don't do that. Although, you know, maybe it's a salad of sorts. Uh, what he mentioned was sort of like keep it on the side of your glass like you would with a lemon wedge, depending on the kind of beer. Or maybe it's an orange slice like you would with a Hefeweizen. But nothing like a nice cold pint of Guinness. Yeah, and I think that actually sounds a whole lot safer, even if you do ingest the shamrock, although maybe not. It sounds a lot safer than some of the non-pandemic traditions like kissing the Blarney Stone and doing other things that would not be recommended this time. That's right. Although, you know, I've never stepped foot in Europe. I know Mike Smith has actually kissed the Blarney Stone himself, and it's supposed to give you the gift of the gab, which translates pretty well to radio. So maybe eventually that's (laughs) got to be my next vacation trip. Maybe. Uh, Now, I love the stats about the four-leaf clover and how rare they are. Have you ever found one? I'm not going to lie to you, Jill. I actually keep a four-leaf clover in my wallet. It was picked out by my mother. She sent it to me in the mail. Um, I'm not ashamed to admit this fact, so I keep it around with me at all times. And uh, I'm pretty lucky in the sense that I get to work with you and Ben and Tim, so uh, I think it's working. How long have you had this in your wallet? Oh, let's, I think it's going on four years now. Four years for four leaf clovers. I'm sorry. I have to back up a bit. So your mom finds a four leaf clover and her immediate reaction is I must pick this and give this to my son. (laughs) Well, well, to to explain that a little bit, clearly I needed a little bit of luck a certain amount of years ago. So that's, uh, that's why we're here now. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, I love that story. I too have one. I found it when I was about seven years old and I still have it. It's in a photo album somewhere at my dad's house. And right. Simi Sarah has one as well, because this is how it all happened this morning. This is what started the debate. And Simi uh, jumped in saying, hey, wait a minute, I have a four-leaf clover. Uh, that got John O'Dowd uh, scolding us saying shamrocks and four-leaf clovers aren't the same thing because we were using those words uh, interchangeably. Uh, but uh. Simi has one too that she She's kept for many, many years. So I'm guessing we we can't be the only ones. There must be other people out there with four-leaf clovers that they've kept. Absolutely. I will send you a photo of mine. It's kind of like laminated, if you will. It's really quite neat. And so maybe we can get this going on Twitter where people can share their four-leaf clovers. Hold on. Is it kind of laminated or is it laminated? (laughs) Well, it's there's some sort of plastic film on top. I don't know if it's an actual professional industrial grade laminate, (laughs) but it's protected and it's been with me this entire time. So it's working. All right. You need to send that out and we'll get people talking about it. I I think you're right. I think others, uh, maybe not laminated. You might be on your own, but maybe not. Who knows? (laughs) All right, John, thanks so much. We'll talk to you tomorrow. You got it. Thank you, Joe.